be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 34. Genesis chapter 34. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dina, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dina, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. The men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will according to what you say to me, but give me the young woman as a wife. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor his father and spoke deceitfully, because he had defiled Dinah their sister. And they said to them, We cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition we will consent to you, if you will become as we are. If every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. So the young man did not delay to do the thing, because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem his son came to the gate of their city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and every animal of theirs be ours? Only let us consent to them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out the gate of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain, that two of sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword, and took Dina from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. And Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a harlot? 
Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Compromise is something that happens regularly in financial negotiations, and we're okay with it when it happens there. When it happens in politics, we understand why it happens, though we're often unhappy with it in that situation because no one really gets what they wanted. And as G.K. Chesterton once put it, compromise used to mean that half a loaf was better than no bread. Among modern statesmen, it really seems to mean that half a loaf is better than a whole loaf. But when we turn to the subject of our faith, of our worship of God, we must remember the words of A.W. Tozer, who said, We are not diplomats, but prophets, and our message is not a compromise but an ultimatum. What we see this morning in our text is a sort of compromise. It's a deceptive one, but it's a compromise nonetheless. This is one of those slightly uncomfortable passages that we often find in the Old Testament and the lives of the patriarchs. The the Bible is pretty honest about the events that took place, but we need to understand that the Scriptures are not only honest, they're intentional as well. Our text this morning starts with Jacob's daughter. In verse 1, we read, Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. Now, if you'll remember, uh, back to chapter 30, it was recorded uh, when Dina was born. And we know that she's the youngest child of Leah, the second youngest of all Jacob's children at this point. Only Joseph is younger than her. After Joseph's birth, you'll remember, Jacob served Laban another six years before leaving Padan Aram and returning to the land of Canaan. So that would mean that Dina was maybe seven, possibly eight, by the time they returned to the land of Canaan. But in our text, we see her going out to investigate the culture because of her curiosity. It doesn't tell us how old she is, but it's a safe bet she wasn't seven or eight. She's obviously older than that. Some years have passed between the end of chapter 33 and the beginning of chapter 34. Her older brothers, Simeon and Levi, who figure large in this episode, were probably only about six years older than her, which means when when they left Padan Aram, that Simeon was only about 13. So, They're obviously older than that here in chapter 33. They're young men. We don't know how much time has passed at this point. Uh, Jacob and his family have been living near uh, this city of Shechem, and most commentators agree it has probably been seven to ten years since the close of chapter 33. Dina is likely a teenager at this point, and her older brothers are young men in their early 20s. So the Scripture doesn't tell us everything. This is not a comprehensive biography of Jacob. We just skipped over seven to ten years of his life. Now, that should make us question the significance of the things Scripture does record for us. Why are some things included and other things left out? When the Bible includes one of these uncomfortable or less than flattering events in the lives of the patriarchs, we can rest assured that Scripture does it for a reason. The Holy Spirit had a purpose in including this 
in the Scriptures. Now, the Scriptures themselves tell us that these Old Testament historical narratives serve several purposes for us. Jesus said in John 5.39, you search the Scriptures, that is the Old Testament, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. So one purpose of these things is to testify of Christ. And we've certainly seen that throughout Genesis and the, the lives of the patriarchs foreshadowing and pointing forward to the promised seed who is Jesus. But the Scriptures give us two other reasons for the historical records of the Old Testament. In Romans 15, 4, it says, For whatever things were written before in the Old Testament were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. So whatever is recorded in the Old Testament lives of God's people, one purpose of it is to instruct us for our learning that we might learn to live godly lives and have hope for the future, just as they had hope in the promises of God. But there's a third reason we're told that these things are included. In 1 Corinthians 10.11, it says this, Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. In context, this passage is telling us that when the Scripture records the sins and the faults of the Old Testament people of God, it does so as a warning, as an admonition to us that we might learn from their example not to commit the same sins they did. In fact, there in 1 Corinthians 10, it, it says that we should learn by their bad example not to lust after the things of this world, not to commit idolatry, not to commit sexual immorality, not to tempt God, not to complain about our situation. And the list goes on. Our text this morning, I believe, is one of those admonition passages. It instructs us by way of warning. And what it teaches us is that we bring reproach on the name of Christ when we compromise the covenant for our own ends. So let's look at the actions of Jacob's sons in this passage and see how we should heed the admonition that we learn from their example. Now, the first thing to note here is the, the cultural curiosity that we see in Jacob's daughter. Jacob had spent 20 years, remember, under the influence of his worldly father-in-law, Laban. But Jacob had actually come out of that, at the end of that 20 years, with an increased sanctification. Jacob, the, the schemer, had come out of being under Laban's influence and was able to speak with humility of his own integrity. But then he chooses to raise his children in close proximity to this Canaanite city. Now, the reader should already have a bad feeling about this when you, when you read this passage because we've been reading and we've already seen the example of Lot. He lived in the city of Sodom, a Canaanite city, and it brought him nothing but trouble and grief. Abraham, on the other hand, had located himself in the mountains, away from the wickedness of the Canaanite culture. He was still able to conduct what business he needed to. He was separate, but not sequestered, not secluded 
secret. But Jacob is settled right outside this Canaanite city. And when his daughter becomes a teenager, she is allured by the culture. And so she goes out to see the daughters of the land. She went out alone, it appears, to satisfy her cultural curiosity. She went to investigate the other young women of her day. But as she is out uh, investigating, observing the other young women, she, she is happened upon by the prince of the city. And so we read in verse 2, When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the country, saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. Now this is a tricky verse, and commentators don't agree on how to interpret this. Note that Shechem took her. This is the same language that is used throughout uh, Genesis to speak of a man taking a wife. It does not necessarily imply violence. He violated her, and this is the same word that's used elsewhere to instruct us, to instruct worshipers, and how they are to humble themselves before God. He speaks tenderly to her in verse 3. His soul was strongly attracted to Dina, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So he loved her. He spoke kindly to her. In verse 26, we'll find that she is still in his home when Simeon and Levi come in uh, to sack the city. When Moses gives the people the laws uh, later in the book of Deuteronomy concerning rape, he uses much stronger language than is used in this passage. He makes it explicit that violence is involved. He uses the language of seizing or capturing as a slave, of forcing or using strength against someone, similar to the language describing murder. Shechem violated her. He, he defiled her. He made her unclean in the eyes of God. This was an unlawful sexual union. He saw her. He acted upon his lust. But whether it was rape or not is really difficult to say. But either way, he sinned, and he brought shame upon her. And when Jacob heard what had happened, he, he didn't really respond he, he remains quiet. He waited till his sons came in from the field. And when they heard, they came in. And we see that Jacob remained silent. And his sons took the lead in speaking with Hamor and Shechem. It almost seems as if Jacob wasn't even present for part of this conversation. I, we can hardly imagine that he would have been okay with their suggestion that the Canaanites be circumcised and that Jacob's family become one people with the Canaanites. And we see at the end of the chapter that he definitely didn't approve of what they actually intended and what they actually committed when they slaughtered the men of the city. The Scripture doesn't tell us why Jacob didn't speak up or, or try to settle matters but left it to his sons, and so we, we won't speculate on that, but I'd like to focus on his sons and what they actually did. And the first thing that Jacob's sons did in this passage that I would say we should learn from and be admonished by is that they were angered by Shechem's sin. We see this in verse 7. The sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter. Now, it's not sinful to be angry about sin. In fact, we should be angry about sin. 
but it's why and how we're angry that matters. We're told in Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And throughout the New Testament, we're told to put our own sin to death. But the key here is that we are to hate evil because God hates it. We are to hate our own sin because it is an offense against the holiness and glory of the Creator. But it seems clear from this text that Jacob's sons are angry, not because of the offense against God, but because of the offense against the family, against their sister. It's noteworthy that the two sons who who take the lead and are the primary actors in this are two of Dina's full brothers, also sons of Leah, Simeon and Levi. They seem to be particularly angered about what was done to their sister. And so their anger against sin starts off wrong because they're angry for the wrong reasons. And we can easily see the same tendency in ourselves. We, we get easily angered when someone sins against us. More angry most of the time when someone offends us than we actually get angry about our own sin against God. So we, we're off to a bad start here. The second thing they did wrong was that they were motivated by revenge. And again, like their anger, there's a mixture of right and wrong here. We, we should desire to see justice done. Shechem had sinned, and sin deserves God's wrath, as Brian spoke about in CLA this morning. But the brothers overlooked two important things. They overlooked the fact that it is God's place to judge the wicked and not ours. Now, like I said last week, the first generation of Israelites to read this account written by Moses were likely the ones who entered the land of Canaan, and they were going to enter that land to conquer it. They were going to take possession of it. They were going to slaughter the Canaanites who lived there. God would command them to destroy the cities, to kill everyone. But he didn't command Simeon and Levi to do that here. They took it upon themselves to do that. They were trying to do God's work for him without having been told by him to do that. This is never a good idea. This is an important lesson that the Israelites needed to learn before they entered the land. The only reason that they were to destroy the Canaanites as they went into the land was because God had told them to, because God had determined in his wisdom that the time of judgment had come for the Canaanites, and then he used Israel as his tool to accomplish that. But here, Simeon and Levi decide on their own, apart from a command from God, they decided they would act on God's behalf to see that justice was done. And when their father rebukes them at the end of the chapter, they respond in verse 31, but they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? He shouldn't get away with this, should he? We had to do something about it. So they overlooked that vengeance belongs to the Lord, not to man that it is God's prerogative to judge the wicked, not ours. And this displays a lack of trust in God's sovereignty and in God's timing. He will judge the wicked. Justice will be done in the end. But that's God's call, not ours. Secondly, they overlooked mercy. 
as the Israelites enter the land in the book of Joshua, we see several times that there are Canaanites who are not killed, Canaanites who receive mercy and grace. Particularly, we think of the prostitute, Rahab. Why did she receive mercy? Well, because she turned to God in faith. Now, Shechem doesn't clearly turn to God in this passage, but he does sort of admit some fault and almost is seeking forgiveness. In verse 11, he says, Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. So by asking for favor or grace in their eyes, he's admitting his wrongdoing, that he, he, he has no merit of his own before them. He's seeking forgiveness. He's even offering to make restitution in any amount that they would name. It's not clear repentance to God for his sin, but it should have been enough for them to extend mercy. They don't, obviously. And Jacob later in his life says this, Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Now that's God speaking prophetically through Jacob at the end of his life as he blesses his sons. Hebrews tells us that he was speaking in faith as a prophet when he did this. It's not a flattering picture of their anger. It's cruel, it's merciless, it's self-willed rather than God-ordained. It is cursed The punishment given them by God is to be scattered. If your Bible has maps in the back, you may have one showing the allotment of land to the 12 tribes of Israel when they took Canaan. And you'll notice something. Simeon's allotment is small and completely surrounded by Judah. They're landlocked. No oceanfront, no lakefront. And they're not next to any of their brothers. Simeon is spread out, apart, separated from his direct kin. And Levi, you'll notice, has no allotment in the land. They're literally scattered throughout Israel. They have cities of refuge in each of the 12 land allotments, but no Levite territory of their own. So they are chastised by God for their behavior in this incident. 400 years later, their descendants suffer that chastisement. God will act to judge sin in his own time, not ours. They were sinfully angry. They took God's judgment into their own hands. And what's more, they did so in a very problematic way. For one thing, they lied. We see this in verse 13. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamor, his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dina, their sister. Now, these are Jacob's sons and Laban's grandsons. They come by deception naturally, as we all do. But you can see right away that though they justify their actions, thinking that they were doing the right thing, Shechem deserved it. 
They go about this by means of deception. Justice is never properly executed if you have to lie to accomplish it. They, they claim to be carrying out justice against Shechem's sin, but they commit the sin of lying in the process. Their so-called justice is done with a high degree of hypocrisy. When God's people take it upon themselves to do that which is reserved for God alone and then do so with dishonesty, it does not result in justice or goodness. And worse still, they disgraced the covenant. Their deception involved misusing the covenant sign of circumcision for their own ends. This chapter calls our attention back to chapter 17 when circumcision was first given to Abraham and his family. There, God promised Abraham a multitude of descendants who would inherit the land of Canaan. He promised that he would be their God and that they would be his people And he gave them circumcision, saying, It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. This sign of the covenant represented the special relationship between Abraham's family and the Lord God Almighty. It marked them as God's people who would worship him alone and follow his commandments obediently. It marked a person as having an interest, a participation in that covenant. It was a mark of distinction to mark the difference in the flesh, it says in Genesis 17, 11, between God's people and the rest of humanity. It was a holy thing not to be taken lightly. But what Jacob's sons did was use it for their own purpose of revenge. They disgraced the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, bringing reproach on Israel by dealing deceitfully and cruelly with Shechem and indeed with an entire city of people. They should have kept the sign holy because it represented a holy covenant with a holy God. Instead, they suggested the use of the sign for the exact opposite thing for which it was intended. In verse 14, they say, they said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you if you will become as we are. If every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. The sign that was supposed to mark them out as a special people was instead being used to join them to the people of the land. Yes, they spoke deceitfully. They had no intention of becoming one people with the residents of Shechem, but the people of the land didn't know this. And again, the reader should respond to this by going, "Uh uh-oh. The last time we read that sort of language, becoming one people, was back in chapter 11 when they were building a city and a tower and they were all one people. It wasn't a good thing then and it's not a good thing now. They didn't explain the religious significance of the sign, the covenant with God. They focused merely on the external cultural aspect of it. They severed the sign from that which it signified. It signified the cutting away of the old man, the sin nature, in order to walk in newness of life in covenant with the prince of life. 
but they treated it as an external right that by the mere performance of it could render a person a member of the covenant community apart from any change of the heart internally. And because they so profaned the covenant sign, not only did they sin in their anger and desire for revenge, not only did they lie and deceive, not only did they misuse the sign of the covenant for their wicked purposes, they also lost their testimony to the people of the land. Instead of being a light to the nations, instead of testifying to the holiness of God, they became a stench to the people. Verse 30, it says, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land, among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. They became like an unpleasant and offensive odor in the nostrils. God's people are supposed to be the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. 2 Corinthians 2.15 But instead, instead of being a fragrance of truth and grace, they became a stench of deception and cruelty. So how then are we admonished by their example? Well, the obvious thing is not to seek vengeance, but to leave it to the Lord to see that justice is done in His time and in His way. But more than that, I think that we often see this entire pattern in this chapter in our own lives and and in the life of the church. Cultural affinity that leads to cultural curiosity, that leads to cultural accommodation, that results in a compromise of the truth. And like Simeon and Levi, we bring reproach on the church and on the name of Christ when we compromise in order to accomplish our own ends. Let me explain what I mean. We, we start by gaining an affinity with the culture. And I'm not talking about loving our fellow man, which we should do, but rather we begin to love the things of the world. We, we, we get familiar and comfortable with the attitudes and the appetites of the culture in which we live. We live too close to Shechem. We consume the same entertainment that the non-Christian world does. We listen to the same music. We, we learn the same way of thinking about the world, science and politics. We become comfortable with all the ways that the world thinks about these things. And, and we're desensitized to the ungodly ingredients in the culture. Now, I'm not saying that Christians shouldn't watch movies, but I'm saying that a Christian should be discerning about what they watch. I'm not saying a Christian shouldn't study the sciences. We should. Of all people, we should study creation. But we shouldn't accept at face value what non-Christians teach about the world. Darwinian evolutionary theories have become accepted by some Christians, or at least merged into a monstrosity known as theistic evolution. Darwin's evolution without natural selection, creation without the supernatural, It's an unrecognizable and illogical mutation, to use Darwin's language, of both, and rightly rejected by thinking parties on both sides. But even if we reject Darwin on the face of it, the ethics that come downstream of Darwinian evolution may be accepted unknowingly by Christians who are not carefully thinking about what they are imbibing in the culture. 
We dare not get too comfortable with the ideas and the attitudes of the unregenerate culture in which we find ourselves. And when we do become too comfortable, it breeds a sort of curiosity similar to that displayed by Dina in our text. She went out to see the daughters of the land, to observe what they were doing, how they were dressing, how they talked. We start looking at the world to see what's popular. We're in very real danger of being taken in by the world in the same way that Dina was taken by Shechem. And our curiosity leads us to start adapting some of what we see in the world to our lives as Christians and to the life of the church. We begin to study businesses and brands to see how do they gather a customer base? How do they build brand loyalty? And then we think we can take principles from that and apply it in the church. I actually attended a church conference a number of years ago in which there was an entire session dedicated to learning about what they called the experience economy, typified by Starbucks, and applying what we learned from Starbucks to the church. How can we provide people who come and visit our church with the same sort of guest experience that Starbucks provides? I know of churches who have sent teams of people to Florida to be trained by Disney in guest services for greeting visitors and converting them to loyal repeat customers. Now, I'm not saying that Starbucks and Disney are are doing anything wrong in those areas. What Starbucks does with coffee is wrong. What, (laughs) What Disney does with entertainment is increasingly wrong. But they may be doing customer service fabulously for businesses, but the church is something different. It's not a business. It's a family. It's a body. It's a covenant community. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. We need to learn from God's Word, not from Disney or Starbucks, how to conduct ourselves in the house of God. And invariably, this sort of cultural curiosity and adaptation, uh, taking the things of the world and trying to apply them in the church, will result in cultural accommodation. We start accommodating the culture in the church. We, We come to believe that, well, people won't come to church unless we have a cafe in the foyer serving specialty coffee and fresh pastries. They won't come unless we have the latest music, an entertaining youth program, a a senior women's knitting while riding unicycles group. Whatever the, the current niche interest group is that we're told is the hot must-have thing. Do you see the problem here? Like Simeon and Levi, we're justifying the means because our stated goal is good. Right? Their stated goal was justice. Shechem shouldn't get away with this. He sinned. He deserves punishment. Now, their real goal was vengeance cloaked in the guise of justice. Our goal stated is the Great Commission, right? We, we just want to build the kingdom. We want to grow the church. We want more people to come to faith. But we're thinking like Simeon and Levi. First, we've taken it upon ourselves to do what is God's to do. We don't build the church. Jesus does. Remember when Jesus asked his disciples what people were saying about him in the culture? And then he asked them, well, what do you think? And Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, 
the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Notice carefully what Christ said there. First, he renamed Simon, which, by the way, is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Simeon, which means he has heard me. He renamed him Peter, a rock, a stone, a building block. And then he said, and on this rock, I I will build my church. On the foundation stone of Peter's confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, on that cornerstone, Christ would build his church. He didn't say, you will build my church. He said he would build it. And we've been given tasks to do, no doubt. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are to make disciples. But even then, Paul tells us in Corinthians, one plants, another waters, but it is God who gives the growth. We don't build the church. Jesus does. But like Simeon and Levi taking upon themselves the task of seeing that justice was served, we take upon ourselves the task of building God's church for him. And like Simeon and Levi, we end up making dangerous compromises when we do. They treated the covenant sign in an unholy manner in order to serve the good purpose of justice. And I'm ashamed to say that Baptist churches have often treated the covenant sign of the new covenant, baptism, in a compromised manner for the sake of building the church. Now, this happens when we turn baptism into a merely external rite, the way Simeon and Levi suggested circumcision to the men of Shechem. No participating in the covenant which this sign signified When we administer baptism to someone apart from a reasonable assurance that they actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and confidence to our Lord, obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm quoting, by the way, from our confession. When we we don't try and ascertain that before we baptize someone, we've reduced the sign of baptism to something less holy than it should be. It should be, unto the party baptized, a sign of his fellowship with him, that is, Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, of his being engrafted into him, of remission of sin and of giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. That's what baptism signifies. If we don't have a reasonable conviction that the person has actually repented, that they have actually been truly engrafted into Christ, turned from their sin and walking in newness of life, then we shouldn't baptize them. Now, this doesn't mean that we'll do this perfectly every time. God sees the heart. We don't. We can't see the heart. We look on the outside. So sometimes we might get this wrong. But because we're looking at the outside and not at the heart, and because baptism is a sign of such a holy union with Christ, we shouldn't treat it flippantly. This is a serious matter. So if you come and ask to be baptized, expect that the elders will want to meet with you. We'll want to ask you some questions. Discern if you truly understand the gospel. Are you trusting in Christ alone and not your own works? 
including baptism, for your salvation. We want to know why you want to be baptized. Not because you think it will save you, not because it's everybody else is doing it, but because you have truly repented and want to follow Christ in obedience by publicly professing your union with Him. We take baptism seriously. Sadly, some churches don't. Lauren and I attended a church a number of years ago that they didn't even call it baptism. They called it getting drenched. And they actually gave you a t-shirt afterwards. It says, I got drenched at, and then had the name of the church on it. That's flippant. A few years ago, there was a Baptist church that was in the news because they were conducting what they called spontaneous baptisms. They held a service, and at the end of it, they said, if anyone wants to get baptized right now, just come forward and we'll baptize you. No discernment, no questions asked. And they even had people planted in the congregation. This is a larger church. They had people planted in the congregation who got up and came forward to kind of prime the pump so that people would feel comfortable. I'm not the first one getting up and, and going down front. So they not only baptized people without attempting to discern the genuineness of their conversion, they actually lied to the congregation because they baptized people who had been planted in advance and then pretended to get up spontaneously. They made a mockery of the sign and brought reproach on the covenant signified by it. They ended up in the news because of this. I saw a video just the other day of a church that baptized a woman on her profession that God had called her to rescue animals from cruelty. That was why she wanted to be baptized. This brings reproach on the very idea of union with Christ. It treats the sign of that union with contempt. Oftentimes, it's because our goal is to brag about how many people we've baptized this year, how big and how quickly we're doing God's job for Him by building His church. No better than Simeon and Levi here in Genesis 34. Another way that we compromise both as individuals and as the church is by being less than honest or forthcoming about doctrine. We're afraid that it might turn someone away. Perhaps we're talking with someone about Christianity or about the church, maybe even thinking of inviting them to come to church, but we hesitate to mention repentance. That that, that would mean talking about sin. That might be an uncomfortable conversation. So instead, we just talk about all the fun parts of church, the fellowship meal, the activities, the pie contest. Whatever it is, we, we don't want to mention the difficult, uncomfortable things, sin, repentance. We may not even mention Jesus. But if we lead someone to believe that they're a Christian because they attend church, or because they got baptized, we've led them astray. The irony is that in an effort not to offend them or make them uncomfortable, we left out the best part. I mean, the fellowship is great. Don't get me wrong. I enjoy it. But the best part is that God forgives our sins, that He grants us an everlasting inheritance in Christ. Why would we leave that out? We were part of a church a number of years ago 
that adopted a slogan, Begin, Belong, Believe. Now, it's catchy, it's alliterative, and here's what they meant by it. It meant that their method of growing the church was to get people involved in the things that the church was doing socially in the culture. And some of those things were good things. I'm not saying they weren't. They would get them involved, and they had a program trying to rescue women out of sex trafficking. Well, even a non-believer can agree that's a good thing to do. And so they, they could get them involved. They begin they get involved in these activities that the church is doing. And then, and then they invite them to social activities, fellowship meals in people's homes, fellowship activities that the church has organized. They're doing these things with the same people that they worked alongside in these uh, social activities in the community. And so they begin to feel like they're part of the group. They belong. They belong to the church. They're not even a Christian. And then by osmosis somehow, because they are part of the community now, they will just begin to believe what the rest of us believe without us having to say anything. Now that church grew from 150 to over 700 people in regular attendance. God had called us to another church in the meantime, but one of the elders later confessed to me that maybe one out of the 550 new people who were attending this church, maybe one had actually confessed sin and professed repentance and faith in Christ. One out of 550, and they were baptizing them in droves. This was over the course of maybe three years. 550 people. They had a desire to see the church grow, but somewhere along the way they lost sight of the gospel. They lost sight of the unseen reality that there are lost people in need of spiritual rebirth. It became about the externals only. A lot of compromises were made over the course of a few years to get to that point. And that's why it's dangerous, because it, this sort of compromise has a tendency to sneak up on us. We start with good intentions, and then the next thing we know, we've slaughtered a city. Well, maybe not. But... We're trying to do God's work for him in our own ways. We've actually failed what he told us to do. He told us that we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Mark 16, 15. We are to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In 1 Peter 2, 9. And then we're to trust Christ to build his church. Like Jacob's sons, we treat the covenant as less than holy. And when we do so, we lose our testimony in the world. They look at us and they say, they only care about numbers. They only care about money. They don't really love people. They don't really believe anything different than what the world believes. They just want to grow a big thing that they're in charge of, a big thing that glorifies them. We bring reproach on the name of Christ when we compromise the covenant for our own ends and our own glory. And we display a lack of trust in the sovereignty of God to do what only God can do. So let us be admonished by the example of Simeon and Levi that we might not sin as they did, that we might not take it upon ourselves to do what only God can do. Let us learn to treat the covenant as holy to keep our eyes firmly fixed on Christ, 
do what he has called and commanded us to do, leave justice. Leave the the growing of the church to him. Let God do his work and be faithful in what he has called us to do. Let's pray.